You are listening to Devils and Dirtbags. Season 1 is called Child Molesting Priests. This is Episode 8, entitled Father X, Part 4. Listener Warning. This episode deals with child sexual abuse, incest, and suicide. sisters one one of them denied it till the day she died this one she was abused not very much i guess from what she said my sister lorraine uh, she got it full bore and then um without my and he i was in well he started on me when i was very young even before i went to school but i didn't know what the hell it was all about he taught me how to masturbate him i didn't know what i was doing except that he wanted me to do that so i did it you know and it seemed to make him happy, so that was how I would make him. Four, four years old, well, you, you don't have a thought process, you know? And uh, it, it kind of went on for a while, and uh, it stopped, and I was glad it did. And uh, my father and I never spoke of it again. I just figured he, he realized it was a dumb thing to do, and he stopped, you know? When he stopped, how old were you, would you say? Fourteen. Father X was molested by his father for a decade, from four until fourteen, until he escaped the seven-foot-tall monster. In 1955, he left his western Massachusetts hometown to attend St. Joseph's, a Catholic boys' school all the way down east in the main mill town of Bucksport. Back in the 1950s and 60s, the Catholic Church ran dozens of high schools across the U.S. for religious teens intending to enter the priesthood, called minor seminaries. Many of these schools were eventually exposed as havens for child-molesting priests, teacher headmasters, preying on defenseless students. Father X's alma mater, closed decades ago and, according to him, was a hotbed of sex, but supposedly just among the students. Sexual activity was, quote, rampant. His grandfather clocked gong during this part of the conversation, so it was tough to hear, but I asked if the priests at St. Joseph's were part of the sex scene. Was there all sorts of sex going on there? Oh, yeah. With priests? Not the priests. The, the boys themselves? Oh, I, I would. Yes. You were never abused by a priest? No. No. But did, did you fool around with boys oh, at this point? Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was half the fun, I mean, you know, being there. Yeah. Well, it was going on rapidly. It was all boys, yeah. teenagers, yeah. no priests involved. Not that I'm aware of. 
After graduating from St. Joseph's, the future Father X went on to the University of Montreal, far from his father's reach, to study philosophy. Then, on to the seminary, St. John's, where he claims he lived a celibate lifestyle, despite the secret sex room across the hall from his dorm room. He knew he was gay, he told me, but he just wasn't acting on it. In 1967, at the age of 26, he was ordained by Bishop Christopher Weldon, and Father X's first priestly assignment was in the western Massachusetts town of Orange. Big town of, oh, oh my God, I hated it there, I really did. And I was there three years. Three years in Orange, which I really didn't like. And then I went to Olsh. And uh, um, it was while I was at St. Mary's in Orange, uh, some young guy, very good-looking guy, came <laughs> to the office, and he's sitting where you are, and they'll say there's a desk here. And he, he started to talk about, somebody told me you're gay. I said, oh, it's all right, I don't care what people say. He, he was feeling me out, and I, and I didn't even realize what the hell he was talking about. I was, I was kind of naive, obviously. I wasn't even bright enough to figure it out, you know. And uh, now I know damn well what he was after, but I didn't know that. <laughs> By 1970, he'd had enough of the rural life. He wanted to experience living in Springfield, so he asked to be transferred, and then he started molesting altar boys. And, uh, when I went to Our Lady of Hope, I mean, to Our Lady of Sacred Heart, I was there for five and a half years. Um, a lot of things happened, though. The whole Levine thing happened. Uh, the war was getting very intense. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the name Jerry Spafford. Why is that familiar? Who's he? I, vaguely. Father Spafford. He was a. Uh, he had been in when I was in Orange. He was in Pittsfield, St. Mark's in Pittsfield, and anyway, we, we ended up both being assigned together at Our Lady of Sacred Heart, and he became a very close friend of mine. And, uh, he was very much into the anti-war movement and preached on it, drove everybody absolutely crazy about it. Regarding Father Jerry Spafford. Both Richard Levine and Father X considered themselves good friends with Spafford, who, according to the diocese, has not been credibly accused of molesting children. However, I have found several references to this priest and his multiple leaves of absences and eventual dismissal from the priesthood in court files connected to child molesting clergy. He left the priesthood in the late 1970s. During his five years at Olsh, Father X molested at least three altar boys, and that doesn't include David Stanley, who knew Father X at Olsh, but wasn't assaulted by him until the priest was transferred to Our Lady of Hope. And, sadly, it's more than likely Father X had additional victims we'll never hear about. It's been estimated that only 10% of male victims of sexual abuse come forward due to cultural conditioning and feelings of shame and guilt. Also, during the same time period, Father X's sister Charlotte had asked for the priest's help in dealing with her 13-year-old daughter's drinking, drugging, and wild sex. 
I don't know what the hell was going on with her, but she was going with three and four guys at a time and go for it, you know, <laughs> anything you want. And uh, she was drinking. Flash forward to 1986. Father X is 45 years old and pastor at St. Matthew's in Indian Orchard. His dad, Mr. X, is 74 years old. His oldest sister, Charlotte, was 52, and his other sister, Lorraine, was 47, divorced and living alone. And then she had a nervous breakdown. And uh, all of a sudden I got a call from my sister, the older sister, and she said, Lorraine is, Lorraine is having a hard time. And she said, did you know that dad was having sex with her? I said, no, I didn't. I had never known that. Although he experienced the depth of his father's perversion firsthand, Father X was still shocked by the news. And Charlotte asked him to confront their father. So, and he was working as a policeman in the uh, Old Sturbridge Village at the time. And I called home, and I, I, I my mother answered, and I said, could you put Dad on? <laughs> so he took the phone, and I said, I want to see you tomorrow. Uh, are you working? Yeah. I'll see, we're having lunch at such and such, such and such a place. I'll be there at 12. Meet me there. He knew damn well the jig was up, you know. So I, I met with him. He was nervous as hell. And I said, you know, I'm going to kill myself. I said, don't do it here because you'll ruin the lunch for all these people, you know. And I was really trying to get him to stop talking about that crap because that was just to draw attention away from what we were there to talk about. And, uh, and I said, Lorraine's afraid of you right now. And uh, she had had a nervous breakdown and all this stuff. We never knew what the hell that was all about until... Lorraine ended up telling Charlotte, her sister, how all of this came about. Lorraine, by this time, had divorced. She was alone. So the old man is starting to come back to visit the daughter. That's when Lorraine confided in Charlotte. That's when Charlotte called me, and I said, I'll be down to talk to the old man tomorrow. I was able to cope with the fact of what happened with him and me. I, I thought that was all over. I, he never said anything about it. He didn't say, I'm sorry, it's all right. I don't care. I didn't need that. But uh, learning that it was still going on that bothered the hell out of me and uh so i i said it's gonna stop and i said there are consequences for this you know well when she was right you know when she was she was my girl i said she was never supposed to be your girl that way you know well i'm gonna kill myself that's why i said don't do it here but i said you are never again to go to her apartment alone if i find out that you've been to see lorraine all by yourself I said, I'll make life hell for you. And he got nervous. That's when he said, it won't be long. You won't have to worry about this any longer. I said, well, do what you must do, because I, I can't swap that. And nobody's going to babysit you. And a few months later, he took his life. Again, for context, this was the fall of 1986. Around the same time Father X confronted his pedophile father, he molested 14-year-old Jack Ballard during an overnight visit to the St. Matthew's Rectory. Then, three months later, Father X went on a two-week Barbados getaway, and I, using his words, babysat the rectory. 
A couple weeks after returning from his Caribbean vacation, Father X was awakened late on a Saturday night by the ringing of the rectory telephone. It was his mother. There'd been some drama. She heard a noise outside. And it was, and this was February, February 8th, I think. And uh, the, the, the grandchild that was just talking about the diet of the heroin overdose, he had been screwing her right and left. And uh, she was getting to be nervous about the whole business, wanted it to stop, and he didn't want it to stop. And, and that's, she started drinking a lot, and he, she called them. And she was talking to, and she was not making too much sense. That's from what my, my mother said. And so my mother said, you take this, I can't, I can't, I don't know what she's talking about. So my father took the phone, and what she was rambling on about, that she was going to go to the district attorney. Mister got terribly nervous about that, and that's when he, he had a gun, of course, because he was on the police department there. And that he went outside in the snow and uh, put a bullet through his head. My mother heard the noise, and uh, then she, 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 she woke her up, and she got up, and she couldn't find him. And that's when she called one of my nieces that lived close by. And uh, my niece came over, and I guess she saw him in the snow out there. And she called me. So I, in the middle of the night, I went over. And I went out to see him. Sure enough, he was there. He was thoroughly dead. But by the time I got there, the police were there, and the ambulance oh. was there, and all that kind of stuff. And as I went around the, the house, uh, the policeman said, uh, You can't come here. I said, Excuse me, he's my father. I am going there. Oh, okay. Well, I had my call around and all But he was long dead. My mother said, did you give him the last rice? I said, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. I didn't because he'd been dead okay. for at least yeah. an hour or two. And, uh, but I spent the rest of the night. It was a Saturday night. I remember it very well. And uh, that week was a long week. <laughs> so Saturday night, then you had to go back to St. Matt's and say Mass at 9 a.m. Yeah. So you're probably up all night. Oh, I was. Well, the people were good. I said, I started Mass up. I said, I, I, I just want to share with you. I'm not going to preach today. My father died. I just said, my father died during the night. And I've been, you know, putting up with uh, the grief with, with the family. And I said, so we're going to get this done quickly and, and I'll go back home. You know, that kind of stuff. Wow. But I found out that he was doing the grandchildren, the, the boys and the girls, you know. And, uh, that not only was had he been doing my sister, but he had been screwing around with the niece, my nieces and nephews, his grandchildren, and uh, nine grandchildren, and he had tasted every one of them. I mean, you know, he was a, it was a, an awful thing. Did your mother know any of this? I don't know. I suspect that she probably did. I, I really don't know that. So he abused you, and then you abused these yeah. kids. Yeah. That's always the hard thing. That's been the hardest thing. For me. I pray about that every day. I pray a lot, anyway. All my prayer books are here. But uh, I ask God, how could I perpetuate something like that that was done to me? And rather than realize that I, that's a, a bad thing, I also repeated it. You know? so. That was it. The moment Father X admitted to being a child molester, he said it matter-of-factly, no tears or any emotion. It was shocking and surreal. As he went on with the sordid story of his family, I stared at the photographic portraits of his parents 
and his sisters hanging on the opposite wall. Looking at the picture of his dad, I wondered how much hurt and heartache this son of a bitch caused, how many victims, and how many of those victims victimized others, and so on, and so on. I don't understand why Father X would keep those photos in his living room, the portrait of his monstrous father, any of them. You'd think they'd be a constant reminder of the sorrow and sadness and sickness that's plagued his family for generations. Was Father X blind to the pictures, the way he'd grown deaf to the grandfather clock's gongs? I mean, they look so smiley and everything. I'm just looking at this photo, and it's like, it's got to be hard for you to have the photo on the wall. Not anymore. That picture, I sent them to the to the photographers. I was at a very sacred heart. And I was, Jerry Spafford lived across the hall from me. And I don't know what the hell to get my parents for Christmas. He said, send them to a, to a photographer. So I made arrangements to, for them to call Grenier Ducharme, and that was the picture that came from that. So I got the, the proofs and I, I picked out the pictures that I wanted and the frames and everybody up for Christmas got that, you know, so. Actually, after, after the old man did himself in, I put that, I put that away for a while, for a long time. It was in the closet, then finally I put it up. Do you think he was abused? My sister Charlotte and I talked about that after. Yeah, we probably, we think he probably was by somebody. And I, I have a suspicion who it was. I think he was doing it with his sister, my Aunt Marion. Using that knowledge, what, what, what's that do in terms of like, does it make you less responsible for your actions? Because you're a product of abuse? What, uh, was connected to it for sure. Um, I don't think it doesn't. It doesn't absolve you. You know, the actions that I've done are my own. But at least, in knowing where it began, it gives me an understanding of of why I did what I did, and gives me a better ability to control myself. And to, There's not much to take away except the knowledge that this is where it started, to know where it came from, and to you use the knowledge of that to purify yourself, or whatever you want to call it. So your father killing himself didn't stop you from acting inappropriately with kids? No, not really. The, the attraction was there, for sure. Right. You know. Do you have that attraction still, you think? Well, I think I could if I... If I so chose to uh, act on it, but I, I, I don't. There's a lot of dysfunction to digest. Perhaps now you understand why I've granted Father X a pseudonym. When possible, I'm trying to protect the identity of victims. And in the case of Father X, victimhood extends to his entire family, all molested by the pedophile patriarch. We're going to leave Father X and head to another time and place to discuss a different child-molesting priest who impacted Father X's family, and we're going to learn more about Father X's father.
In the early winter of 1977, a dozen parish pastors from the eastern rural section of the Diocese of Springfield attended their monthly deanery meeting in the rectory of St. Bart's near Three Rivers. After the routine business was complete, a special guest of honor stood to speak. The gathered priest had been apprehensive about this visit by a bigwig from the diocese, fearing he was bearing bad news because the guest was Father Thomas Dupre, Bishop McGuire's right-hand man, who later became bishop himself in 1994. My brothers, let me get to the point, Father Dupre said with a grin. Bishop Weldon's secret files have all been destroyed, so if anyone was worried about something in those files, that's no longer an issue. How do you know? asked one of the pastors. Bishop Weldon had been unpopular with the rank and file, especially the younger priests, who viewed the old man as a cruel J. Edgar Hoover-type curmudgeon, unfamiliar with modern ways. The new bishop, McGuire, was a pleasant and easygoing fellow. He didn't act like a cop or a prison warden. Trust me, Father Dupre replied. I know the records were destroyed. There was a collective sigh of relief, and no one was more relieved than the priest we're going to call Father Z. After the deanery meeting was over, Andy, a 15-year-old altar boy, was cleaning up the cups and saucers. All the visiting priests had left. Andy and Father Z were alone. Bishop Weldon was a real hard-ass, Father Z said. He maintained a private file on each one of us priests. He had spies everywhere. I wish I knew who was spying around here. If you've got any suspicions, let me know, will you? Yes, Father, of course, but what would they be spying on? Whatever a priest does wrong, whether you've stolen from the parish, whether you're a drunkard, or if you've had sex with somebody, then they let the bishop know, and then he'd let you know that he knew. Father Z grinned widely. But not anymore. The files have been destroyed. Ha <laughs> ha! The teen would have been even more shocked to see his pal Father Z's file, thick with allegations. The priest had been in trouble many times because of his sex addiction. Men, women, girls, boys didn't matter to Father Z, though he preferred altar boys because they were the easiest to control. He was a master manipulator, using marijuana, whiskey, and porn to relax the boys so he could do whatever he wanted, wherever he wanted, sometimes in the rectory or in St. Bart's Church itself. He'd also bring victims to his cottage in the town of Huntington or to a house in the town of Sturbridge where, horrifically, he would share his prey with fellow pedophile priests including his best buddy and longtime sex partner, Father Q, and other clergy from the Worcester and Boston diocese. Feels so nice, Father Q said and took a long sip of wine, draining his glass. So glad those records were destroyed. I agree, replied Father Z. We're so lucky. Fathers Q and Z 
and Andy, the 15-year-old altar boy, had just finished dinner. The teenager was slightly loopy from the wine the priest had given him. The meal had the air of a celebration. Father Q grabbed a bottle of Cuddy Sark from the sideboard and poured three drinks. To Bishop McGuire, Father Q said, raising his glass to heaven. To Bishop McGuire, Father Z repeated, clinking his brother priest's beverage. Within months of that dinner, both priests began molesting Andy, often at the same time. Twenty-five years later, the diocese settled a lawsuit filed by the former altar boy, but not before Andy went public with his memory of Father Dupre's announcement that the secret files had been destroyed, which the Hamden County District Attorney found very interesting. Kathy was tall and beautiful and just 17 years old when her mom, a pious and devout Catholic mother of five, helped her land a housekeeping position at St. Bart's Rectory. It was there that she met and fell under the spell of 45-year-old Father Z. The priest and housekeeper soon began to have sex, or, more precisely, Father Z began committing statutory rape. Less than a year and a half later, Kathy got pregnant and was forced to quit her rectory job. Her mother, embarrassed by Kathy's condition, brought her home and kept her there under house arrest. Word on the street was that no one knew who impregnated the girl, but Kathy had told her parents that Father Z was the dad of her unborn baby. Her devout mother refused to admit that such an evil sin was possible. Instead, she tried to blame the young man who mowed the cemetery and churchyard. The young man denied having any recent contact with Kathy. Then her mother tried to pin it on another teenager in the neighborhood who also denied paternity. The sad truth was that Kathy had an exceptionally hard life. She'd been sexually active for many years before her pregnancy. In fact, the sexual activity started before high school, before middle school, and even before grammar school, back when she was practically still a toddler. That's when Kathy was raped and molested by her grandfather, her mother's father, the seven-foot-tall monster we're calling Mr. X. Kathy was one of the nine nieces and nephews abused by Father X's father, and then she was impregnated by another notorious serial child-molesting priest. On a mid-August morning in 1979, her happy baby boy was born. He was given his mother's last name, and the first name of an Old Testament prophet. Even today, only a handful of people know who fathered the child. When the baby was two years old, Kathy returned to school and earned a nursing license, then worked at a state school and a hospital. On August 20, 1990, the day before her son's 11th birthday, Kathy complained of a headache and went to bed early. She never woke up. 
the coroner attributed her death to a brain aneurysm. Father Z had died three years before, so Kathy's son was now officially an orphan. The good news in this otherwise tragic tale is that the illegitimate child of the evil priest and his victim turned out to be a decent, well-adjusted, pleasant person. That's according to his great-uncle, a 90-year-old fella I'm going to call Tom, who knew the whole ex-clan back in the 1960s, 70s, and 1980s, and is still very close to his now 40-year-old great-nephew. Tom's younger brother Bob was Kathy's dad. Bob had been married to Father X's oldest sister, Charlotte. Tom said Mr. X stood seven foot tall and was a real asshole. They worked together for a little bit at the wire mill. Quote, when he felt like working, he was a hard worker. I kind of liked him for a while until I saw what the real story was. As for Mrs. X, Tom recalled her as, quote, a real bitch, very bossy and a know-it-all. Tom remembers how Mrs. X caused a big scene during Bob's wedding reception. Right in the middle of the dance floor, she hauled off and slapped Mr. X in front of all the wedding guests, quote, and I thought, oh my God, she is asking for trouble. He's at least two heads taller than her and so much bigger. One punch and she'd be on the floor, but he held back, probably worried she might divulge something, because she was the keeper of the secrets. One thing that wasn't secret was Mr. X's sex addiction. Tom put it bluntly, quote, he was always walking around with a stiffy. He was always ready to have sex at any time. No female was safe with him around. He was a nut and had no control. Back then, people thought he was just a relentless skirt chaser. It was the mid-1970s when Bob discovered something evil was happening. Tom was reluctant to discuss specifics with me because of an oath he'd sworn to his brother Bob over 40 years ago. But then Tom confirmed that the details I'd heard were true. Bob divorced Father X's sister, Charlotte, in the late 1970s. The split was a relief for Tom and the rest of his family because it had become obvious that Bob's home life was deeply troubled. Bob was real nervous all the time, and he looked haggard and spent. According to Tom, that was because Charlotte dominated Bob and the kids. To call Bob henpecked, would be an understatement. Quote, she acted like she was a religious person, but she was a bitch, a bad person, like the father, but not as crazy. She was more subtle. She did everything undercover. The divorce didn't end Bob's troubles, though. One day, Mr. X and his brother-in-law confronted Bob while he was working in the front yard of his mother's house. Mr. X had a gun. They grabbed Bob and started roughing him up, Mr. X's way of warning him to keep his mouth shut about the family dirt. But then Tom and his mother showed up, 
Suddenly there were witnesses. Mr. X and his henchmen slunk away. Less than a decade later, Mr. X put the bullet in his head, but, according to Tom, the family denied Mr. X committed suicide. It was an accident, they claimed. Happened while he was cleaning his gun. Cleaning the gun in the backyard on a cold winter's night. Now we're back in Father X's apartment, and I'm still processing the news of his family's horrible history. He takes another sip of bourbon. God, don't stop drinking this. This is burning my throat. Do you want some water? No, no, I don't like to do that. At this point in the conversation, I was feeling sorry for the dude. I'd come to his apartment full of anger, ready to pepper spray and wire tie this evil child-molesting priest if I had to, but the details of his life story were changing my perspective. Turns out, I'm not the only one who has this conversion. Back in 2010, during the pre-trial stage of Jack Ballard's lawsuit, the victim's lawyer reached out to Father X. Hell of a nice man. Uh, He called me up and asked if he could come up. I said, sure. And we sat in my, my apartment for a couple of three hours. And, uh, and he, he said to me, and, and it was a little bit of a revelation, he said, you know, I don't mind saying this to you. He said, you didn't stand a chance. I said, what do you mean? He said, you grew up in a, in a family where there's pedophilia going on. Uh, you went from there to a Catholic school, from there to a, uh, I went to a, a, religious, a religious high school. Then he said you went on to the seminary, which is another one of these close situations, close society. And then you go into uh, priesthood, living with males, exclusive. He said you didn't really have a chance. It was bound to come out. The lawyer was right. Father X was, is, and will always be broken emotionally immature, wounded. He's a friggin' sad sack, a 76-year-old loser, a fat old guy living in poverty among people who don't know the real him. What a far cry from the stylish priest I knew in the 1980s, a respected and empowered holy man believed by so many to actually possess supernatural powers. You know, there was a lot of talk about Weldon destroying files and things like that. Do you think that happened? Uh, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. It's interesting that the lawyer came and talked to you, but nobody from the church came and talked to you. Once they've let you go, they don't want to see you anymore. Like many child molesters, Father X's denial runs deep. He'll only admit to the most minor aspects of the accusations against him. This is what he has to say about the boy I've been calling Jack Ballard. He was my paper boy. And, and he was a little bundle of energy and he liked to play tricks and all of this. And a, a handsome little kid. He'd ring the doorbell and he was always eating a candy bar or some damn thing and he'd hand me the paper and I'd say, could you just put the paper in the slot, you know. He wanted to talk, and, you know. And uh, every day he'd stop and ring the doorbell. And at some point he started 
He said, do you play games? I said, well, it depends what you're talking about. He said, how about Scrabble? I said, yeah, I don't like to play Scrabble. So a couple of times he came over and played Scrabble. But you know, I didn't pursue him. I really didn't. Uh, I got a, it was Christmas, I guess. I got a card from yeah, I want to come and visit you. And fine, I have no problem with that. And uh, by this time, I had been at St. Matthew's one, one year about. And uh, I knew he was coming. His, his parents brought him over. And by the time I saw him, from the last time, he had grown this much, you know, that spurt age, you know. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, it happened anyway. So, but that was the, the last time, the last one I, I, I ever touched. He's lying, trying to diminish his crimes in his mind and mine. There's tons of testimony from multiple victims and families proving Father X was a serial abuser. For further confirmation, consider that the diocese has collectively paid his victims almost a million dollars. So, without a doubt, he's a guilty son of a bitch. What's your guilt feeling like now? Do you have guilt? I, I don't anymore, but I, I have had. My, the only guilt I have is uh, what damage I might have done to anybody else. That's the only thing I pray for, you know, Lord be good to them, and if I've caused them anything, you know, heal them, you know, that's... What would happen if you saw him? I have no idea. Would you say anything to him? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to be in that situation, right. I guess. But, uh, but every day I pray for those uh, people who are important to me, people that I've hurt in whatever way. And uh, I pray for the sick, you know, who are ill, those who are, there are some people in this house who are struggling with cancer and all of that. I pray for all of those things. And uh, I use this book and a few others. Give us this day. It's daily prayer for the Catholic, for today's Catholic. And it's something for every single day. And I, I, about 40, 45 minutes every morning. So. Do you miss being a priest at all? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Like what? What would you miss about it? Liturgically. I, I enjoyed yeah. that. And strangely enough, the thing I was worried most about when I was ordained was preaching. I was terrible. I knew I was going to have to do it, but I was afraid to do it. And it ended up being one of the things I enjoyed the most. Yeah, that's funny. If you were not a priest, would you have gone to jail for what you did? Uh, the whole statute of limitations business figures in there. I knew I had done something wrong, okay? And, uh, and I knew that my, my just penalty was not to be able to do that anymore in terms of officiating. Yeah. That your penalty was no longer being able to be a priest. Yeah. In Father X's mind, removal from the priesthood was punishment enough for his sins. He's been deprived of the life he'd trained for and dreamed of. He's lost the respect and prestige and power of the priesthood. He also lost easy access to kids. And these days, as an old man living alone in subsidized housing for the elderly, he has no excuse to be with any youngsters. Theoretically, getting thrown out of the priesthood made it tough for him to get close enough to groom or molest children. But he's never had to register as a sex offender, and the local cops are ignorant of his lengthy history of crimes against children. Have you had any boyfriends since then? Have you dated? Have you? I, know, I haven't really been 
trying to hook up with anybody. And you know what? I don't want one. Why not? It's I, I just don't need that complication in my life. You like being by yourself. I enjoy being. Sometimes I get lonely. I'm not gonna bullshit you about that. But uh, my life is quite ordered and orderly, and uh, I, I like it the way it is. Do you feel that the, the bishops ignored this scandal? They world? certainly didn't deal with it. They didn't deal with it, yeah. Could they have stopped it in any way? Uh, could they? They didn't have a mechanism to do it, you know? The church hadn't, you know, faced up to that. The only thing I remember once, uh, I was still at, I was still at a lady's sacred heart, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we had a convocation at the Pachetus Monastery that was still, you know, viable then, and we all had to go there. And there was a a lawyer there, diocesan lawyer, who spoke to us generically, and just talking about you know, if you have sex with kids, be aware that there's this, 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 and this, and you know, just be aware that these are the consequences. But that was about it. But it didn't stop you. No, it didn't. It may be, may be aware that they were of consequences and that kind of thing. I've never come across any other reference to this convocation of Springfield's priest where a lawyer read them the riot act about molesting children. But there's no reason Father X would make this up. If the convocation took place while he was at Olsh in the early 1970s, it's highly likely that this was part of the diocese's response to the sins of Father Richard Levine. As we learned in Episode 1, Fitzy, the state police lieutenant investigating Danny Croto's murder, had a sit-down with diocesan officials around this time and told them about Levine's child-molesting ways. The church didn't know what it was doing with that stuff. I don't think it still does. Yeah. Do you think there's a chance that there's still priests taking advantage of kids and probably I don't know but probably because being being in that profession you you on a one-to-one -one basis with an awful lot of people and if and if you wanted to prey upon one you just manufacture a situation where you're going to be one-on-one -on -one. earlier in the conversation I'd suggested that the church had abandoned him had hung him out to dry rather than helping him deal with his sexual demons. Father X sees things differently. You say that, hung him out to dry, but the church paid for me to go to this place in Aurora, Ontario, South Down. That was like $6,000 a month. Let's briefly step away to another time and place. In December 1992, Father X became a patient at South Down the 48-bed Canadian psychiatric facility for clergy with problems including substance abuse, mental illness, and sexual misbehavior. When the Emanuel Convalescent Foundation opened Southdown in the 1960s, the patients were alcoholic priests who needed to dry out and get counseling. Southdown staff soon realized booze was usually the least of the patients' troubles. So the focus shifted and Southdown began treating nuns and priests for their deeper psychological problems. 
which, in most cases, were sexual in nature. In February 1993, as Father X entered into his third month of treatment, South Downs' longtime executive director, a psychiatrist and priest named John Loftus, presented a paper at a conference in Toronto where the subject was, quote, sex offenders and their victims. The paper was based upon a study of data about the child molesting priests treated at Southdown during the clinic's first 25 years. Father Loftus's presentation also provides insight into what Father X experience would have been like during his five months there. According to Loftus, Southdown's techniques mimicked the standard sex offender treatment programs at the time using cognitive behavioral therapy and so-called relapse prevention in conjunction with, quote, internal re-education. Loftus said, quote, we are fortunate to be blessed with a strong group of therapists trained in bioenergetic analysis. This is a largely nonverbal, physically orientated form of therapy designed to allow clients to re-educate themselves to their own bodies. Emphasis is placed upon breathing, posture, awareness of sexual energies in the body, etc. Using these techniques together with other forms like psychodrama, gestalt, or meditative instruction seems to bring an added dimension to more traditional cognitive behavioral strategies. We used imaginative tools as well. The attempt here is to circumvent the intellectual defense so dominant in this population, end quote. Southdown's methods include role-playing, group and one-on-one therapy, yoga, massage, and a wide variety of exercise programs to re-educate the body and the mind. There were also sex ed classes. Among the clergy who came to Southdown for treatment, Loftus said, quote, they have woeful ignorance, a pathetic lack of knowledge and sophistication about all things sexual, end quote. As I've mentioned before, Catholic families, especially back then, didn't discuss sex. And, during a pre-seminary training, sexual topics were completely off-limits, which was pretty nuts considering the wannabe priests were expected to take a vow of celibacy. Lacking strategies to handle their natural sexual desires and maintain abstinence, it's no wonder so many clergy crossed lines and broke laws. Quote, We provide explicit sex education, often about basic physiology and plumbing, as well as education, often for a first time, about boundaries in professional situations. Loftus glossed over the details of the techniques used to treat child molesting priests with, quote, deviant arousal, the clinical term applied to child molesters and rapists. One commonly employed technique of the era was called, quote, masturbatory satiation. It involves the patient, presumably in the presence of staff, masturbating while verbalizing a so-called, quote, healthy sexual fantasy until orgasm. Then, the patient is instructed to verbalize, quote, an inappropriate fantasy 
and continue masturbating for another hour or two, presumably without achieving orgasm. According to one study, a reduction in deviant arousal might be noticed after a dozen sessions using this technique. A similar technique called verbal satiation includes the initial masturbation sequence, but post-ejaculation, the patient verbalizes their deviant sexual desires without masturbating for at least 30 minutes until their fantasies become tedious. If this regimen is followed at least three times a week, a reduction in deviant arousal is said to occur after 40 to 60 sessions. Which brings us to the rarely discussed penile plethysmograph, a medical device that measures and records variation in the volume of the penis. So, in theory, the plethysmograph measures arousal. It's basically a combination blood pressure cuff and lie detector. In a common application, the child molester's penis is placed inside a sensor-lined sleeve. Then, the molester is shown photographs of naked children accompanied by auditory stimuli describing sex acts with children. Arousal indicates the patient needs more therapy. The plethysmograph, used in conjunction with cognitive behavioral therapy and hormone therapy, more on that in a minute, supposedly enabled staff to determine if the patient was making progress. However, the ability of these erection detectors to accurately measure arousal remains unproven, never mind their use in predicting an offender's proclivity to commit more sex crimes. Southdown used this device on a regular basis, but many other clinics don't use the machines at all. In Maine, where I live, plethysmographs aren't legal, though Maine does use the notoriously unreliable lie detector during, quote, full disclosure polygraph, end quote, to determine if sex offenders have successfully quelled their illicit urges before release from prison-run treatment programs. One medical treatment that's been proven effective in dealing with child molesters is called, in common parlance, chemical castration. It's a prescription of birth control-type pharmaceuticals called antiandrogenins and are used to stop testosterone production in the sex offender, resulting in an inability to be aroused physically or mentally. Chemical castration is gaining in popularity in countries other than the U.S. It's used as a judicial tool during the sentencing of sex offenders who are offered reduced jail time if they take the pills. Advocates say it saves taxpayer money while rendering the criminal impotent and, in theory, unable to reoffend. Of course, that depends on whether the sex offender actually takes the pharmaceuticals. Hence, the importance of monitoring and, apparently, the use of the penile plethysmograph to detect arousability. This brings up the question of post-treatment tracking. After release from Southdown, patients were required to attend one follow-up session two years after leaving the clinic. No other monitoring was required. Which brings us back to Father X. Judging by the pear shape of his body and the hint of increased breast size, 
two side effects of the hormone regimen, I suspect Father X was chemically castrated at Southdown and may still be taking the medication today. It's a great place, though. We had talks. We each had a, a counselor. We each had a therapist. Uh, we had to do all kinds of exercises and pool and all, every other damn thing you can think of. But it was a, it was a great place. It was, it was a great place of understanding, and it was the first place that I was ever present where I could really talk about everything and began to have somebody knowledgeable who was able to bounce back. But that was my fault. I, I never went to see anybody for, to look for help. The Diocese of Springfield paid over $30,000 for Father X's treatment at Southdown. Over the next decade, they also paid out close to $250,000 in settlements to three of Father X's victims. And yet, as we heard in Episode 6, church officials refused to pay for two weekly therapy sessions for Jack Ballard at the cost of $125 per week, claiming the diocese couldn't afford the expense. That decision ended up costing the diocese another $600,000 when they settled Jack's case in 2011. A lot of people would argue that with pedophilia, there is no treatment. Uh, I've heard that, yeah. Do you think that's true? Oh, I don't know. Every addiction has its... uh, In every addiction, there's always the ability to to move away from it, but it's, it's not an easy thing. Are you, are you attracted to gay men of your own age or young men? Or? Uh, well, there are some people that I look at and say, Haha, you know, that'd be nice, but uh, I don't act on it. You know? and I so you're celibate? Yeah, you all intents and purposes, yeah. Uh, I was never interested in little bitty kitties. You know? Was it a teenage boy? Yeah, yeah. 14, 15, 16, uh, and people my own age, yeah. By this point, I was exhausted. I'd been there for almost three hours overwhelmed with unfamiliar feelings of compassion and sadness for this heavily damaged man. I was even more friggin' depressed and still harboring anger. Not for Father X, though. I was angry at the bishops and the other church officials and all the powerful institutions in society where child molesters and rapists are protected. Well, this is giving me a lot to friggin' think about. I thought I was going to just come here and have a couple drinks and say, what up, dude? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. I'm sure this is a surprise conversation to well, be having. it is. It is. Especially since I didn't even know who the hell you were when you were at the door. <laughs> we all change, you know? Yeah. The topic changed, too. No more heavy discussion. I'd learned more than I'd hoped. And this new knowledge will haunt me forever. We return to small talk about his role on the apartment building's council, about his church attendance and his walks around the neighborhood and hanging out at the library, and we discussed his finances. Um, so you get by on Social Security, which is nothing. It's like 800 bucks a month or something like that, right? Seven something, but I also have SSI and I have uh, three squares, they call it, it's a food allotment. So I pull in about $1,000 a month. And what's your rent cost, you? It's, it's a HUD thing, so it's only two thirty something. But you're still broke. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I still buy a lottery ticket in the hopes that you know, 
you buy lottery tickets, so I hope that he wins something. Of course. What would you do if you won a bunch of money right now? I'd buy a little house and. If there is a god, Father X won't win the lottery, and the earthly odds are also stacked against him, since he only buys two tickets a week. If he wins the big one, I wouldn't be surprised if the media discovered his past as a child-molesting priest. Imagine the lawsuits his victims would file then. The fella should be careful for what he wishes for. As I gathered my coat, I noticed more photos sitting atop a bookcase in the corner. Father X explained who they were, priests, now dead, that had been his friend, a dog he used to take care of, nephews, nieces, a married couple with three kids from his current parish, and some ancient, old-timey family photos. These were my parents, my, my grandmother, my grandfather. Yeah, grandfather, grand, grandfather, grandmother. This is the sister I made reference to with yeah. my father yeah. and two of his brothers. He tried to give me the bottle of bourbon, but I refused. It's a gift, I told him. My gut tells me he'll die in this small apartment, and his heirs, presumably his nephews and nieces, will come and collect the family portraits and the grandfather clock. Because their uncle had been a Catholic priest, I'm sure they'll find a wooden box containing his chalice and patent, and perhaps even some vestments, folded in a drawer or hidden away in a closet. We stood opposite one another in the tiny living room and shook hands. Oh, it's so nice to see you. You know the way out? I left the building and found a restaurant where I ate a late-night steak and drank a beer. Then I returned to the Fleabag Motel, drank more beer and smoked a couple of joints, trying to make sense of this world. And of course, I couldn't. Earlier in this investigation, I'd suspected Father X had been a victim of abuse himself. But after reading so many accounts of child-molesting priests and getting angrier and angrier, I'd forgotten that suspicion or pushed it out of mind, didn't want to become too sympathetic with the abuser. I realized everything was not so black and white. Father X made children victims because he'd been victimized as a child, which damaged him the way he damaged them. The next morning, after a shitty continental breakfast in the Fleabag Motel, I drove downtown for one last look at Father X's neighborhood. Sure enough, Smokey was on his bench across the street from the entrance. I beeped and waved, then headed home. It's probably better that I didn't know all the gory details at the time of our conversation. I might have opted for the pepper spray and wire ties instead of the bourbon and books. The Father X of today reminds me of pals of mine who are also victimized by abuse, damaged permanently, never seeking help or justice. Instead, they accept their psychic scars as part of their life, which leaves them burdened, emotionally unable to connect, all because of fate. 
and evil. My empathy has limits, though, and doesn't extend to Mr. X or suspected murderer Richard Levine, and I definitely have nothing but loathing for Bishop Thomas Dupre. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. For early access to Devils and Dirtbags, subscribe to MainerNews.com, a worker-owned media cooperative. Visit DevilsAndDirtbags.com for a bibliography of source materials, plus redacted PDFs, of victim statements, and never-before-published secret memos from church leaders. While there, you can learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. A maddening and recurring question. How could this happen? Why didn't the diocese remove the many known child-molesting priests from within their ranks. The sad truth, at the height of the Springfield crisis, a wolf was guarding the henhouse.